0: Hello and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. On this episode, I have Kirsten Lopez and Chelsea Slotin, and we will later be joined by Suzanne Eskenazi and Nicole M. Herzog, the editors of the With Grit and Determination, A Century of Change for Women in Great Basin and American Archaeology, a new book. We're going to start our first segment discussing our impressions of the book. And I'm looking forward to this discussion. And I'm looking forward to our discussion with the, the editors later. Because this was absolutely fascinating. There were so many points where I just kept going, yes. Yes, that point too. Yeah. Good quote. <laughs> what are your ladies' impressions of
1: the book? I, I loved it. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, so I agree. So I will preface this by saying that I am not... Great Basin archaeologist in any way, shape, or form. So a lot of the information <laughs> in here was was completely new to me. Um, but it was one of the most approachable academic books. Um, mm-hmm. because I mean it is it is the University of Utah press. Um, so it is an academic book, but it's one of the most approachable academic books I've ever read. And and it was really joyful to read. Mm-hmm. Um I mean it was it was also frustrating hearing about all the sexism that existed hundred years ago and all the sexism that still exists today. But it's been a long time since I've picked up an academic book and just been completely sucked in and consumed rather than being like, Oh, I have I have to write notes and you know, where's this, that, and the other thing? Um, it was really enjoyable. Oh my gosh, yeah, and the notes were easy to take
0: too. And before I forget, I, I figure maybe I should uh, read the the uh, description of the book before we get too too far down our uh, our excitement about the book. So it says, spanning more than one hundred years of women's careers and lives, this collection illuminates what it is to be an archaeologist. These personal accounts of researchers, ethnographers, and field archaeologists and private, public and academic sectors highlight the unique role of women, a group that women have played in the development of American and Great Basin archaeology. Written by women trained or working in the Great Basin, these accounts reflect the broader landscape of American archaeology, offering a glimpse into a larger narrative about making one's way in a historically male field. By sharing their stories, the authors highlight the positive aspects of the field recognize the challenges that still exist and encourage conversations about inclusion, diversity, and the future of archeology, span yes, in the Great Basin and beyond. Their authentic and intimate narratives inspire us to look at challenges, not as roadblocks, but as opportunities for lifelong growth and success. And boy, does this book live up to that description.
1: Yes,
2: it really does.
1: And it's the title of course is With Grit and Determination. A century of change for women in Great Basin and American archaeology, which sums all everything up perfectly. Oh yeah, um, I because think that's that- what you
2: needed to survive or succeed, I should say.
1: Yes, and still, uh, <laughs> still, yeah. And um, as a Great Basin archaeologist, um, I work both in the Pacific Northwest and throughout the Great Basin. It's so spot on. Um, this whole book is actually based on a symposium done in the Great Basin Archae- uh, Anthropological Conference in 2018 uh, that I attended, Ooh. and the energy in the room was electric. Um, it was fully packed. There were it was emotional. It was fantastic. There was laughing. There was applause. There was like just so much wonderful support in the room, um, both between the male colleagues that attended and all of the women who packed the space. Um, it was it was fantastic. It was definitely a memorable symposium, um, one of the most memorable that I've gone to. Um, and afterward um, had a couple of the ladies, not the editors, but a couple of the ladies uh, record uh, an episode at the conference, um, and I'll have to dig that out because we do have that, I believe, on file. Um, so that's something uh, to uh, to revive one of our old episodes. Oh, definitely,
0: definitely. Yes. Definitely. And and this is you said the Great Basin Anthropological Conference because I think it's referred to a lot as GBAC. Yes. So if you hear us saying that throughout the episode, that's what we're referring to.
1: Yes, it's one of those acronyms we've, we refer to it as GBAC. Um, it occurs every two years. This year it's in Las Vegas. Ooh. So they're still trying to do it. They're going to be recording the in-person sessions for people to be able to view after the conference if people aren't feeling comfortable traveling. So that's Mm good. It's a small regional conference, of course. So there isn't, they don't have the resources to do the online like the SAA did, but they're trying. (laughs) So, um, and it was uh, canceled the last time. So
2: Mm -hmm.
1: it's good to see it continuing on. Oh, COVID. The
0: exciting world of the Delta variant
1: now. Yeah. Yeah. To to steer away from
0: more depressing topics of COVID, we can talk about depressing topics of the early careers (laughs) of um, the difficulty a lot of women face. And one thing I I definitely loved about this book are the stories. And um, a couple of the chapters are devoted specifically to um, very prominent uh, Great Basin archaeologists who talked about like their early start to now and then like the things that really helped them get through the, the mentors they needed the mentors they had um and then positive directions for the future and I, I really enjoyed that kind of layout of the book it's like here's how it was here's what i needed here's what i got here's how we can get even better
1: yeah yeah they did a really great job with, with sequencing the uh, stories and a lot of the narrative is very personal and very Positive and very interweaving. It's it's interesting and kind of I don't know if somewhere between interesting, neat, and vaguely I don't want to say depressing. <laughs> <but> <laughs> like the way that the stories interweave and intertwine, and how relate. Like you can see just from these stories how few women have been in the field, um, at least at their. Um, stature or status over the Mm -hmm. years um this is all you know recently changing but i mean the great basin is still pretty it's not like going to the saas no (laughs) well,
2: and one thing i really liked about this they they did mention um one of the authors in one of the chapters and unfortunately i don't have it to hand right now but actually mentions there was a a panel at the saas a couple years ago on like the archaeology of heart which was just Mm. Mm-hmm. Kind of acknowledging that we as archaeologists are part of the story we tell, the lives that we've lived, the experiences that we've had, they influence our interpretations. And it was a move away from some of the scientific processual archaeology that you know some people are, are really fond of, mm-hmm. and recognizing the humanness of archaeology. And I thought that that was really potent. And they also, several of the authors made the people they were talking about very human. Mm-hmm. So the first chapter after the introduction is called Following Isabel Kelly. And my partner literally came into the room while I was reading this, laughing my butt off, right? And was like, <laughs> but you're reading an academic book. Like, Why are you in hysterics? And just, there are excerpts of letters from mm-hmm. Isabel Kelly, where you know, she's just talking about difficulties that she had driving around in, you know, this car with a with a tent in the back of it and informants, but she was asked to do ethnological or ethnohistory research. And what she really wanted to do was archaeology. So in almost every single letter she sends to the archaeologist who has employed her to do this ethno-historical research. She signs off with, after all, archaeology is my first and my only love. I, that <laughs> Before.
0: Too. I love it.
2: Uh, I never thought I could be an ethnologist, but I managed to find it pretty interesting. Even so, archaeology is my first love. And just like <laughs> the personality and the like, I'm doing this because I need a job, but it's not really what I want to do. I want not make sure you're aware of that. <laughs> yes. I just loved it. Like it was so human.
0: And it's definitely one of those profiles, and I I bet Trailblazers already has a profile on her. But if there isn't, we need to get writing. They need to get writing because what a fascinating life that I didn't know anything about. And the chapter was written by Catherine S. Fowler, and such such a wonderful tribute that just really it shows the struggles that Isabel had, but how tra- talented she was, and how she was like, "F that, I'm gonna
1: do my thing." Yeah especially when there was the story of, you know, well, you know, you're a, just a, a lady, you know, you need to stay in the safe areas. And she's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go where specifically you told me not to by myself. <laughs> we had a great time and it went well. Um, so I was just like, I wish I could have met this Isabel Kelly person. Mm-hmm. But She sounds amazing. Oh my yeah. gosh, yeah. Yes, and so many of the authors in here, as um, a Great Basin um, archaeologist, I recognize and Catherine Fowler specifically, uh, the author of that segment, mm-hmm. is a uh, just it's the work that she does with um, and has done with textiles, uh, which is my area of expertise. Is just I, I think I own most of her publications that are easy to come by (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so it's it's really neat to see um and when i was in the conference here uh her own journey and being able Mm -hmm. to as you mentioned humanize some of these like i don't know if i would say rock stars but uh you know the the rock stars of your own subfield you know, the people that you read can constantly and continually in order to know the field that you're in and the subfield that you're in. And people who have been doing this and who have developed sort of the, the point of view that the subfield has taken on over the last 40 years. It's just really neat and refreshing to see that they're human, too, mm-hmm. and have had their own struggles in this field. And it's they haven't always been the established person that they are. And mm-hmm that's a lot of it's encouraging oh yeah
2: and i really appreciated one of the chapters towards the end i can look up which one it is um opening the book right now is rebecca l rauch great race and women scholars of you through the university of utah anthropological papers Mm -hmm. and including someone who did archaeology as an undergrad, has a master's, ran some field schools, and then took, it's like a 25-year break from archaeology yeah. before mm-hmm. coming in and, and being an editor for, um, I believe it's the University of Utah, yeah. anthropological papers, and just looking at some of the reasons why, why people leave, because archaeology mm-hmm. can be a very hard... Discipline And the stories that get told are the stories of the people who kind of persevere. And sometimes I think hearing stories from people who don't or who leave and come back and about those experiences and the, the winding road. Um, mm-hmm. If anyone follows us on Twitter, we recently had one of our followers kind of tweet at us about listening to some of our our episodes and always wondering you know, how how we found our way to our different subfields and how do we know that we're doing the right thing? And the answer is like, at least for me, like we don't, you know, exactly. we put one foot in front of the, fo- do. the, the other and, and follow the path where it leads and laying that bare is, and, and Kirsten, like you said, you're talking about the fact that these great women in the fields um, are just human and also had struggles and also were at one point grad students who were just trying to make their way, I think is really important for the next generation to realize that like, it is about making mistakes. It is about trial and error. Or you can try something and realize that you don't like it. And maybe you don't want to do ethnobotany and you want to do osteology instead. And like, that's okay. You can mm-hmm. adjust course.
0: Exactly. I've been, I think it shows that a lot of a lot of us in the field have very similar careers in terms of just kind of, you know, it's like, oh, I wanted to do this. Oh, well, this job, op- like, gave job gave me an opportunity and now I'm in this direction. Originally, I was a medieval historian. Like, that's that was the direction I was going. And now I'm a Western archaeologist <laughs> for the government. So, yeah, I think it just shows, like, that's okay and go the direction that you want, but also be flexible. I don't know, there's so many unique themes within this book from showing the issues to how you can help be a mentor, um, how you need mentors, how you can be more supportive in the field, how you can get support, that there's like all of these very unique themes that intertwine in terms of, well, why aren't women better represented because of these issues, but here's how we can change these issues
2: yeah, and there was some discussion of horizontal mentorship as well as mm-hmm. vertical mentorship. So mm-hmm. just being there for other people who are, are maybe more at your level rather than just looking up to um, you know, Omar, who is the the head of a site, um, mm-hmm. who again, I'm gonna you can probably hear me flipping through. I know, be so different. Because it's like, oh, I am yeah, I not good at names. <laughs> um, Marion Omar Jacqueline, right, who was the Heritage Program Manager on the Dixie mm-hmm. National Forest and Laurel H. Glidden? 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 I don't know. Not great at pronouncing names. Um, she, you know, started out as a volunteer under her and just kind of re- revered her. And now she's literally filling... Marion Omar Jacqueline's shoes as the heritage program Mm -hmm. manager in the Dixie National Forest. Uh,
0: Exactly. And there's definitely there were some some mention just how archaeology is not necessarily cutthroat, but isn't necessarily very supportive, and that is kind of like, um have the quotes somewhere written down of course (laughs) who knows where it is um just kind of how it can be surprisingly nasty in that it's like well i have the job and you don't do what i tell you kind of thing and where we need kind of more collaborative approach to make it a more um appealing and supportive field because what's the point of kind of treating your your underlings poorly or even your your colleagues poorly um in creating kind of a more hostile environment. And it sounds like that has been,
2: and I've experienced that myself, um, an issue in the field. And there are I think issues with some of the way that collections are done. And particularly when you head towards paleoanthropology, where sometimes there are these, you know, human origins fossils that are found. Mm. That's at least where I've heard like really bad stories where people find fossils and like hold on to them and won't let anyone see them and won't publish for decades. But I've also known people who are like, this is my site, it's my era, you know, who who can or cannot grant collections access. Mm -hmm. And we're all bettered by listening to and working with each other. But because competition in the field can be so fierce, because funding isn't always great. I think Mm -hmm. there is a a fear, particularly in academic and museum positions, that if you share someone will like pip you to the post and get that next job oh, and we do okay. need to change the culture to let's like lift everyone else up and support them mm-hmm. maybe rather than like i need to protect my site so that i can link my name to it and be remembered in perpetuity like
1: no well and that's a sort of i feel like an old guard way reason why people get into the field um yeah as far as there's it's the Indiana Jones idea, or something along those lines, like that. It's that the colonize, coloni, oh, what is the word? Um, Colonial. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, perspective of this is mine. Well, no, because it would it obviously existed long before you did, and um, is, you know, if if it belongs to anyone, it belongs to the descendants, um, not the discoverer so um if you you know quote unquote discover um depending on you know if looking at a paleoanthropology as you're mentioning you know that's definitely much more discoverer than say like a southwest site that someone's got their hat hung on um and it is a problem in the great basin and elsewhere getting into uh one of the themes that's common in or not Common can that's uh, seen in the great basin is, uh, a lot, uh, about the, um, paleo-Indian or paleo-archaic, uh, you know, the earliest, uh, people who occupied the Americas or who migrated to the Americas, um, is a research, uh, road, um, or research venue that people will, explore. And is something that I'm closely familiar with mostly just because of the research that I've happened to land on or be involved with in, with the Great Basin or in the Great Basin. Um, So you do see that occasionally that, that I'm going to hang my hat on this and sit on it. Um, And that is happening less and less in the Great Basin. You get more sharing and more people being cooperative, I think, um, there's still a lot of issues with competitiveness, I think, mm-hmm. especially with the, well, my site's older than your site situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and My so, site has
0: uh, more bones than your site. Yes.
1: So, you know, that's still a point of contention, but I think it's improving. I think there's more discussion around the other parts of, you know, Archaeology, I mean, one of the things I appreciated about this book was bringing out the, what is, you know, often seen as the women's part of archaeology, the non lithics you know, you have more lab archaeologists like Linda Scott Cummings uh, that pops up and discusses her journey through laboratory analysis um, and collections work. And then Catherine, um, as well as the um, Isabel Kelly's journey through ethnology and doing cultural anthropology mm-hmm. in a way that supports and explores archaeology. So it's, there's a lot there that if these contributions from women and what was considered sort of the sidelines or less Uh, hard focus of archaeology in the Great Basin hadn't happened it would be a very different story about what we see in the archaeological record and the conversations and research questions that we have would be very different today if those voices oh
0: very much so the book definitely definitely highlighted that without women's voices we would not have uh, as many interesting questions and diverse voices but as you as I'm sure our listeners can tell we really enjoyed this book and we will be discussing it even further with the editors of the book in our next two segments we'll be back did you know that we have a blog check out the women in archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. In the first segment, we talked about the wonderful book With Grit and Determination, A Century of Change for Women and Great Basin in American Archaeology. And we are so lucky to have the editors of the book, Suzanne Eskenazi and Nicole M. Herzog. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast.
3: Thank you so much for having us.
0: We're very excited to be here. And we're thrilled to have you. And before we dive into your guys' awesome book, can you tell us a little bit about
4: yourselves?
3: Yeah, this is um, Suzanne. You can call me Susie. Most people do. Um, I am a an archaeologist and principal investigator at SWCA Environmental Consultants in Salt Lake City. I've been an archaeologist for over 20 years. Um, I'm originally from the East Coast, but I kind of fell in love with the West when I was in high school and went to college and grad school out West and then just kept working after I got my master's um, in CRM, and this is um, this is me.
4: And I'm Nicole Herzog, and I am an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Denver in Colorado, um, and I, oh boy, I have a lot of interests, and in archaeology <laughs> is probably uh, at the top. Um, I did my graduate work at the University of Utah, so uh, trained in the Great Basin um, with a lot of the people who come up in the book, Uh, and so I continue to do archaeological work in the basin. Um, I run a lab on campus where we look at past diets, and uh, so that's what I'm up to these days and hopefully advocating for more women in Great Basin archaeology um so yeah that's me amazing wonderful thank you so much
0: for telling our listeners a little about yourselves and so just like how did this book come together in the first place because I mean there's just so many wonderful authors and so many great ideas how did this all come to be
4: Susie Um, you tell the story since you are
3: you are our superhero (laughs) in the story (laughs) (laughs) thank you um, we Nicole and I were standing around the book room at the Great Basin Conference in 2016. I was actually standing in line to get uh, Kay Fowler's book that had just been published. Um, I was in line to get it signed, and I got to talking with a couple people in line, and Don Fowler was there, and um, just realized how many incredible women were participating in the conference. And how little we knew about their stories to get where they were. And I, I ran up to Nicole and I said, here's this idea. I think we should take this and run with it. And she completely agreed, obviously. Um, <laughs> and we got some of our, our participants right there in that book room. Linda Scott Cummings was in line with me. Kay Fowler was signing the book. I mean, it's just, it was so kind cool. of a little bit of serendipity there. Yeah. So it did take, you know, um, a couple years later at the next Basin Conference, we had the symposium in 2018 and had all of these fabulous women participants. Um, I think it was the most attended a symposium at that conference, and um, immediately afterwards, we knew that we had to turn it into a volume. So fortunately, one of our participants was Reba Rauch, and she was the acquisitions editor at the University of Utah Press. And she immediately said yes, and walked us through the whole process. So it was, it was incredibly smooth and fabulous. And we're just so thrilled with how it came to be
2: yes I'm so glad that you wrote it
1: yes yeah I um so this is Kirsten I was in attendance um I work in the Great Basin as well and I was in attendance at that symposium and it was uh as I mentioned to uh the ladies here the the room was electric and when uh they shared with me that we're going to be reviewing this book i have just been elated i read the whole thing probably in like three days um which is a um a feat for me since i have an infant at home who likes to try and eat everything that i try and read It's like not only informative, it's <laughs> delicious. <laughs> uh, so it's 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 very exciting to see that it came together, um, and it's it's just so exciting to have a collection. And I feel like this is something that should be done um, more often. It's just the stories. Um, of the the greats and realizing that, you know, we're all human and we all have our own roads to travel and it's not linear, hardly
4: ever. I'll jump in because I think that was something I really wanted to talk about in regard to the book is that, um, like, we know the origin stories of many of the leading men in the field of Mm -hmm. archaeology. Like we know where they came from and their humble beginnings and who they trained with. And I just feel like we didn't know those stories about these women who are the heroes in our field. Mm -hmm. And I think that for Susie and I, like the ability to give these women this platform to share their stories was amazing. And we didn't, give them like any parameters we said you could talk about your research if you want you could talk about your personal life if you want you could talk about other women who inspired you there were really no guidelines but amazingly like i think people just took that opportunity to share their personal stories which was kind of exactly what we needed and i think what people wanted to hear and um yeah, it's sort of like humanizes um, these women and helps us see how they got where they are. And I think you know, for me, at least, it was like seeing how circuitous all of their paths were made mm-hmm. me feel so much better about myself because it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, that's right. It's not just linear. You don't just mm-hmm. get from point A to point B. You make all these weird pit stops along the way. And sometimes, you know, you're a flight attendant and sometimes you're doing some other weird thing. And then all of a sudden you come to this realization that, you know, this. there's this other purpose that is motivating you. So I think the origin stories part was like something that came out of it that maybe wasn't expected, but that I think is really like the best part of the book.
2: I really love that you call them origin stories, because (laughs) as far as I'm concerned, all of these women are superheroes.
4: Yes, exactly. Like, (laughs) when we were putting together the, like, we had like this dream list, you know, of participants. And here Susie and I are like, well, I don't know. I don't know. We can send that person <laughs> an email, but like, like, would they even respond? And so when we got these people to come, we were like, we had like a, I'm going to date myself right now, but we had um, a total like, we're not worthy. <laughs> things, where we were like, oh my God, I can't believe it. We're going to be interacting with these women. <laughs>
3: yes. And what was really interesting is that so many of them said, I don't know that my story is that interesting or oh. anybody is really going to care, but I'll do it anyway. It's like these people that we are looking up to are still very humble and mm-hmm. and don't see what we see in them. And they all said yes, to every single person we asked. So That's amazing. it was just fabulous.
0: I love it. One of the the great things that definitely comes through in every chapter is that even though you didn't give them big parameters everybody seemed to follow very similar themes in the you know it was hard here's how i did it here's what i could have needed here's how we can make it better in the future and yes. i like that there is that trend in every single um chapter and I, I loved that that there's the call to action but also kind of seeing where did we come from like you're saying your origin stories and there's this wonderful uh, quote in chapter four and i just make sure from charlotte beck who said, you can do anything if you want it bad enough, you just have to figure out how. And it gets into that linear, like you don't have to do it in one direction. You can come back to archeology, span you can do different fields, you can do all kinds of different things. And I just, I found that very inspiring that you had these messages throughout all of the
1: chapters.
3: Yeah. yeah, it's really, it was fascinating the way it all came together and we had similar themes in in every chapter, just about about mentorship and serendipity and resilience, and it just showed up in, in every chapter. When
2: That's I was wonderful. saying before the break that I really appreciated the emphasis on how do we lift other people up, how do we make it this easier for women in... The future because you can sometimes get an academia that you know oh grad school was hard for me so I'm gonna make it hard for you too but like why does it have to be that way yeah you know um and I thought that that was really important and a shift that our discipline could uh and grad school maybe uh in a wider frame could benefit from Oh yeah so many
3: different levels Yes, exactly. I mean, I think we see that, um, at least I do in my career. I've i have had so many great mentors, and a lot of them are women. And it kind of taught me how I want to behave in my career and lift other people up and give them opportunities. And that's the only way we're going to move forward is by supporting one another.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I was <clears throat> one of the, the stories that I really enjoyed reading about was Linda Scott Cummings story about how she was just like, Cool, I've I've learned this really neat technique in my biology class. I think we can apply that to archaeology. And by the way, I'm just gonna start doing that before (laughs) like straight out of undergrad. And I'm like, I can't even imagine like it's just I don't know it's it's a, a faith in self or at least in um, one's own abilities and in some ways like I almost feel like the the ability to be like okay I'm gonna do this thing and it's going to end up carrying me through grad school and borrowing the facilities of colleagues and um, professors is just, I mean, she doesn't really go into too much detail on that, but just the way that she was supported and the way that she created her business from just kind of like her spare time as almost a a field of study. (laughs) Yeah. Just (laughs) along the way, as if it was not really a big deal. Um, The way that she talked about it was just, I'm just
4: like, but it, it
1: is a big deal.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It's a huge deal. And I mean, I think that that's a cool theme that runs through a bunch of the papers. And I think, um, Pendleton talks about it in the, um, Forward, where it's like you have to take risks and have faith, and you see that in so many of the stories, like you know, women actually leaving their sort of boring husbands and like field <laughs> <laughs> where they don't know that they're going to succeed. I mean, it's like it's such a big risk to take and to leave these um, other like comfortable lives that they have that are the lives that other people wanted for them. To just yeah. leave those lives and just jump into this thing that probably, you know, looked pretty foreign and pretty weird and pretty unpredictable. And, you know, the faith and the courage and the tenacity to do that um, is just like, it, it's so impressive.
1: Yeah. And it was neat to see so many of the stories intertwine as well. Um, and that's something that was really neat um, as far as between oh goodness from Isabel Kelly popping up in like three of the stories outside of um, Kay's first chapter uh, to references to Omar throughout Um,
2: I know and
4: people that you haven't necessarily heard of you know like Dr. Bertha Dutton I hadn't heard of her before but Oh my God, imagine the minds that she's changed, you know, like she comes up a bunch of times training all these girls in this girl scout program. Yeah. Oh, but, that sounds so fun. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's like, so there are these players like Omar and um, Dr. Dutton kind of behind the scenes who are obviously like building this web of support for other women archaeologists that grows in the future. Yes.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost is like we could do another volume, the story behind the stories,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, yes. but,
2: but I mean, we do also see women who have to go elsewhere. You know, Isabel Kelly tried really hard to build a career in the Great Basin, and they talk about the fact that she is not as well known as a Great Basin archaeologist because she ended up going to Mexico because she couldn't get work. In the area oh, yeah. that she wanted to to be in, and there is grit and determination. And there was a great quote from Levine, 1994, who described her career as a career trajectory de- defined by itinerancy. Just on page 26 of the book, in case anyone is <laughs> wondering. Um, but but you do yes, you can follow what you love. Um, and then and then later there's. Um, the woman who is at the university of Utah press, who talked about how she left archeology span because she decided that she wanted to have the chance for a family. So there are things that you can gain from archeology span and there are people who can support you in getting those, but it, it's still a fight sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, and it would be great if it didn't have to be that.
4: Yeah. I think it's really interesting. A lot of, um, women in this chapter talk about those trade-offs, you know, um, like um, Barbara Frank talks about the trade-off of leaving grad school um, and knowing that not having that degree is going to be a detriment, but also knowing that that wasn't the right place for her at that time. And Mm -hmm. Linda Scott Cummings talks about that too in terms of like starting a family and how am I going to continue to do this work and support my family? Um, And I think that, those are major trade-offs that women doing archaeological work, or any any woman in any professional career, but especially those that involve field work, um, are up against.
3: Mm-hmm. I know um, Heidi Roberts, when she was in grad school, she was training um, at UNLV, and she was uh, doing osteology, and she had just had a baby, and she brought that baby, who is now Running her company with her, as a matter of fact, <laughs> but awesome. into the lab with her while she was doing her research. So there's there are all kinds of decisions that have to be made by women when they're making these kinds of choices.
2: Oh, and, and women definitely so. can do it. I know several um, academics and archaeologists who have kids. Kirsten, uh, I heard a little baby cooing earlier. Yes, uh, which suggests <laughs> that he might be with you right now. So it's certainly doable but there are yeah those those trade-offs that you have to make and we actually did an entire episode on archaeology and motherhood a couple years ago looking more in depth at some of those that we'll be sure to link to in the show notes
1: Mm -hmm. yeah it is a a unique challenge um I say a unique challenge it's not really unique (laughs) (laughs) um but I think with archaeology as you mentioned um the the field component can be challenging. Um, my oldest who is now 17, uh, was school age when I did a lot of shovel bumming. Um, and I worked with a number of companies in the state, uh, that I live in and hustled to get work that was specifically like local Mm -hmm. for no more than a few days at a time. If it was out of town, um, But, you know, staying nearby and then also, you know, trying to acquire friends that I could trust because she was too old to go into the field or really, you know, go to work with me much. So there was that part of it. Um, And even going um, abroad to do an internship in a museum, Um, we thought we had school figured out and it the paperwork didn't align right. So my supervisor at the museum was able to pull strings and get her into a private school for the duration that we were there. Um, because, you know, otherwise, what is a seven-year-old going to do while mom's, you know, working in a museum? Be bored out of their absolute mind is the correct mm-hmm, answer.
0: Man, that sounds like a magical childhood <laughs> for me, but
4: I was totally. a dorky little kid. <laughs> I like the, that you use the word hustle, though, because that yes. is like, yeah, <laughs> really sort of sums up the CRM experience. Yeah, like, it so is weird. a hustle for sure. Well, it sounds like,
0: um, and same again for a lot of those chapters, that the women, they had to hustle in order to get the careers that they wanted, the jobs that they wanted, and that is definitely something we can discuss more in the next segment. We'll be right back looking for other archaeology podcasts there's so many to choose from why not try archie fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people or learn about the study of animal bones and archie animals there's also the great go dig a hole and the Arc and anth podcasts don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the women in archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on itunes spotify all over the place thanks for listening Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. We are with the wonderful editors of With Grit and Determination. And over the break, we were discussing the issues with publishing in the, just the field of archaeology. And it's been an issue in Great Basin Archaeology in terms of representation. And there was wonderful chapters about um, publishing in Great Basin Archaeology from, um, from Rebecca, is it Rauch? Rauch. Roush and Shannon and Shannon I'm I'm gonna have you pronounce the last name because I do not wish to butcher them I
3: think she's Shannon touching him and Tiffany Fulkerson wonderful thank you so much
0: yes. and so um let's let's get into that discussion and why did you want to bring that into the book as well because it's it's a wonderful edition talking about not only the field work but also the publishing side of things
4: yeah I think that you know, that, that kind of like comes back to our initial reason for putting together the symposium, you know, looking at this meeting of Great Basin mm-hmm. archaeologists. So um, the GBBA is um, basically the kind of professional organization for Great Basin archaeologists. And every other year they host a conference and it's a small regional conference. Um, the conference began in 1954 was like the first one. Um, and since then it's grown to about 500 to 600 members. Oh, wow. Um, and like Susie said, you know, we're standing there at this conference, um, with our Great Basin peers and the thing is full of women. There are all these amazing women there, but you kind of look at the marquee of speakers and mm-hmm. the representation is just not there. And so, um, yeah, that was, uh, really a focus of um, Shannon Tishingham and Tiffany Fulkerson's chapter was to look at the trends um, at uh, Great Basin Regional Conferences um, to think about who's there and what are they contributing and how does that look? Um, And so, yeah, the conference began in 1954 and it wasn't until 1986 that the first woman was involved in organizing the conference so a uh, pretty long gap there um mm-hmm. they i think that um they started giving out uh, lifetime achievement awards in 2008 um and that first award that went out in 2008 actually went to a woman Kay fowler who uh, is the first uh, chapter in the book um, and it was given to her jointly with her husband don um, no woman since then has been awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award. So, you know, there's some obvious disparities there. Uh, And and, uh, the chapter that talks about presentation at the conference is at least encouraging in that we can see that the number of women giving uh, presentations has steadily increased over time. Um, We haven't caught up with the men yet, but um, the number is growing, but they talk a lot about what some of the barriers might be, and Reba Rausch talks about the barriers to publication also in her chapter, and um, there are some issues with uh, the number of women archaeologists who go into CRM or non-academic positions And then are not incentivized in those positions to publish their research or share their ideas um, in the same kinds of ways that uh, men who are in academic positions are. So a couple of things going on there and a couple of things that are like specific to the Great Basin um, organization, but that are actually general trends, as you pointed out um, that pertain to archaeology and women's voices being heard and published um, globally, actually. Yeah, it's
1: one of the the biggest things that um, I feel I can connect to well um, and has been part of the larger uh, conversation on a global as well as national level and, you know, in the Great Basin itself that they bring up is um the access so one, the accessibility of publishing, but also the publishing pressures within academia. Um, mm-hmm. even women who are in academia, the the publisher-parish, you know, idea paradigm. paradigm is definitely a thing. However, a lot of women who are in academia because of the roles that they take up in mentorship and service that are uh, more heavily dropped on women in academia than men, um, inhibits really a lot of the ability to spend time publishing because Mm -hmm. they're doing those other important roles as well. Um, or instead I should say. So it's, it's somewhere between, yes, I think, you know, we need to find ways to, um, have the opportunity for more women in other roles to publish academically or in peer-reviewed journals just because of their influence in the theories and ideas that become sort of the mainstays. Uh, But also, I think, and this is something um, that is mentioned, I can't remember which chapter goes into uh, this idea, but uh, I do remember the... The ability to bring non-academic publishing and influence into sort of a a more respected or visible, Mm -hmm. um, it was chapter eight, okay, there we go, Uh, place. So that's something that's, you know, even between all the blogs.
4: um, Your podcast, you guys are doing that here, which is awesome. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Well, it's but one yeah. of those funny things because I consider what I do, like I don't
0: consider what I do as like publishing. It's like my snarky blog posts and whatnot. <laughs> but um, it, it is interesting. And I, I do wonder from CRM um, and working for the federal government, well, how can we have a, a field that values publishing more when it's it seems like that type of work um, is just like, go, 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 get it done.
1: Well, it's also undervalued. I mean, there's oh. a lot of stuff that's published in what we consider gray literature, especially at an agency level, that is used throughout the region. Um, but is it is,
2: considered a publication?
1: No, and that's the, the my my fist raising. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I, I want to point out, it, it is both a
2: cultural shifts kind of in departments and in what roles um professors take on and how much time they then have to do research and publication but it is also i think a shift in what students expect so there was a story that charlotte beck talked about in chapter four from stewardess to archaeologist where she mentions going to i believe it was hamilton where she had a a split position Mm um with her husband and that she was expected to mother the students and that wasn't a role that she wanted to take on and I personally have experienced in teaching that there are some students who expect me as a female professor to do more to help more to be a sounding board to Mm -hmm. you know I'm having these interpersonal issues with my life I'm really sorry it's not actually my job um, if it's affecting your performance, I'm happy to talk to you about it and how we can work around that to make sure that you still meet the learning objectives and su- succeed in class. But I'm not your therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one student that several several professors got together because a student was struggling in several classes. Um wow. And there were three females and male professor and the three females got together and talked about the student, you know, Hey, what can we do to support them? Um, we want to make sure that they succeed major went to the male student. And he was like, Oh yeah, he's having problems, but he hasn't said anything to me about it. Where he'd been coming to all three of us in our office hours, Interesting. telling us what was going on, asking for help, wondering what the university resources were, you know, wanting advice on, on his personal life. And absolutely none of that was placed on the male professor.
3: I think that happens in in most fields as well. Mm-hmm. I know in my um, career in CRM, I've always kind of been that mentor to people. I don't know. I've always assumed it was just kind of my personality. But when you look at it in perspective of gender, it's definitely the women who are always approached when somebody is, you know, having a life crisis or some other kind of crisis and and I don't mind it but it's definitely something that I think my male colleagues have not really had to deal with um, throughout my career it just mm-hmm. takes time
2: that then you don't mm-hmm. have for research and publication yeah true. you know? and and that it's worthwhile and I don't regret doing it it was the right thing to do but it does kind of play into what these last two chapters are talking about with mm-hmm why are the publication numbers for women so much lower? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: It should and, be noted. And this is a, a topic that we discussed a little bit over the break is that, yes, there are uh, male professors and male archeologists that may not be approached or they may not be good mentors, etc. cetera. But um, one thing that a lot of the authors brought up is that they did have supportive male colleagues, um, uh, male mentors that at the conference um it was mentioned that um there were men in the audience who were very supportive so i think there is like this now it's like they want change as well but i think mm-hmm. so much of the pressure is put on women to do the change and so how can we move everybody along i guess how can
4: we yeah i this? think that's yeah. a really good point which is that you know we 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 can't do it alone. You know, we need the support of everyone, mm-hmm. and everybody has to be on board with both acknowledging um, that there are discrepancies and in finding ways to create a more equitable space. And so, yeah, we really need um, all those men to come to the symposium, to be excited about it, to support those efforts of those women. Um, we need to probably, you know, nominate more women for these awards. We need to make sure that we take on the responsibility of saying, hey, these are important people who made important contributions because um, that's also not happening. So, yeah, I think that we can't understate the importance of having both um, men and women who support you Um, and who are good mentors to you and who help you find and identify those opportunities that are important. Um, Because yeah, like many of the women in the chapters mentioned, um, they had uh, male mentors who really changed their lives and who supported them in ways that made their careers possible. So um, it's really important to have everybody, everybody interested and involved and on the same page about um, seeking more equity in our discipline.
0: Definitely. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I I think sometimes there is that attitude. like, well, if I go along this track, what's going to happen to my job, what's going to happen to the field or just that kind of um, silly mentality. If I can't tell these jokes in the field, I guess I can't be funny at all. You know, in terms of the, the casual um sexism and whatnot and I feel like there has been as the book notes very positive change um in general in the field but yeah we do have have a ways to go and just looking at the different issues that the book mentions in terms of publishing field work and so forth in terms of discrimination bias the need for um, mentorship and um and so on it just I look back on my career which isn't terribly long, but it just it's interesting the parallels that I've noticed and I'm sure a lot of people reading this book would agree
4: and be like, oh yeah, I've been there as well.
3: Yes, even if it it was go ahead.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I was just gonna say that was the feedback that we got when we submitted the book for review. Um, The reviewers came back and they were like, why is this about Great Basin archaeology? This is about (laughs) archaeology. You know, they were just Mm -hmm. like, this is a bigger story than just about your particular um, field of study within archaeology. These are like universal stories that will resonate with, you know, most women who are doing this work.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you need to have with grit and determination. Part two.
3: All the archaeology. (laughs) Exactly. Actually, I'm pretty, like, re-inspired doing this podcast because the book came out, um, I guess, 10 months ago or so. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a a whole bunch of fanfare when it comes out. We're real excited. And then it's still COVID, so we can't do any kind of Mm -hmm. in-person release events. Our book release was online. And so this is kind of a little reinvigorating uh, thing for me i would like to see what else we can do with this yeah yeah
4: actually before
0: i forget where can people get your book
3: it was published by the university of utah press um that website i don't have offhand in my brain but it's pretty easy
4: press.com
3: okay thank you
2: <laughs> we will we will be sure to link to it in the show notes
4: as well but it's also available on Amazon and mm-hmm. you know uh, wherever else you buy your books online. <laughs> Excellent. Fantastic. So in addition to kind of looking at
2: the success that women have had and who's made that possible, there was one kind of startling, I guess, thing. And, and I've said this earlier, but I'm not a great base archeologist. Um, <laughs> I did not know who Jesse D. Jennings was before I read this book. Right, like just not not a great Basin archaeologist. <laughs> and the first kind of seven chapters of this book, when he's mentioned, it says someone who doesn't really like having women do field work, or you know, didn't think they belonged in the field. And then we get to chapter eight by Rebecca Rausch, great Basin women scholars, and she talks about the fact that Jennings was actually. Uh, very happy to have women in the fields, just not at Glen Canyon. And that his main reason for not having women in the fields at Glen Canyon was because he thought it was too dangerous and he didn't mind if the men got hurt, (laughs) essentially. (laughs) Um, And that he actually did more to support kind of in his time than is maybe necessarily recognized. And I did think that that was an interesting, like a, a different perspective or, you know, a review. And, and it does also remind me, at least, that there are things that, as a student, as an archaeologist, you may look at and be like, oh, that's not fair. That person isn't trying to help me out. When they may, in point of fact, be coming from a, a different perspective and the importance of, like, looking at things from, from all different sides. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and also taking into context time um, (laughs) and culture. Yeah, this
2: was the 50s and
1: 60s. Yeah. So, you know, the the idea that women were, you know, frail and fainted a lot was still alive at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, taking a look at any Hollywood movie could you know, show you that. Uh, So, I mean, working in a canyon can be pretty brutal. Um, Oh, yeah. And that is, you know, nothing to shrug at for sure. So I, I don't necessarily, you know, hold that um, against him per se. And so I, I think that is a good thing to, to bring up. And it was a really interesting thing to read, as you said, towards the end or the last half of the book after he's brought up so much in being sort of this barrier for a lot of Mm -hmm. uh, women or the, the perception of being a barrier. Um, And I think there's also a good chance that things change through time Mm
4: -hmm. um, as
1: it got into the seventies, which is, I think when, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, Susie and Nicole, but if that's when the Glen Canyon project was, was like in the sixties or seventies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's, I feel like he seemed encouraging and he it was interesting because in some of the stories he's both a barrier and a supporter in that he allowed or encouraged some women to be in the field or in the field in certain capacities he was a turd but a bit of a supportive <laughs>
4: turd. yeah, yeah it yeah. was kind but of a mixed reason- bag where
3: he was <laughs> yeah. he was okay with some women doing some things and not with other women doing other things
1: (laughs) yeah i mean they're complex
4: creatures men Um. (laughs) (laughs) and you have to like there's this great irony in the fact that um a lot of men didn't want women to come to field schools and to do like hard labor excavation work so instead they sent them off to be ethnographers which oh, yeah. is like terrifying. They set them off into the country alone often, you know, to meet groups of people who they don't know, um, you know, speak languages that they don't speak, who are, you know, essentially like journeying out into the world on their own. Um, and so this is kind of ironic that they were protecting them from the dangers of fieldwork uh, doing a like, hard labor, but instead, sort of shifting them into this other world that also had many dangerous elements. So it's it's just kind of interesting that that happened. And oh I yeah, think- you could
0: definitely yeah. add next to like a century of change would be a century of change for badass women of great <laughs> <next laughs> archeology Yeah, yeah. Well, to shift uh, topics a little bit, let's move to closing thoughts about um, your experience putting this book together. It's there. Why should people buy this book? What's your favorite
4: part about this book? It's
0: time for closing thoughts.
4: And go. (laughs) I think that um, just the bravery and the emotion and the personal stories that Mm -hmm. are shared in this book are so unique and so special. And also like they're just like glue. I feel like they bring us all together and they can make us all feel more confident about ourselves and our own experiences. And I think like a real honest reckoning about mental health and harassment and like the vulnerability um, of being able to be emotionally connected to the work that we do. Um, it, it's all on display in this book. And I think it's just so important. I think it's so important for people to see that. Yeah, definitely.
3: Yeah, I agree. I think I was really blown away by the truth telling and the vulnerability and just the hard work that went into all of these chapters. I mean, these women are not all retired and have nothing else to do. And they they really came to it with a with a great spirit and an energy. And they met I just they met all of their deadlines and the whole process was so smooth, um, it really was meant to be. And I would just really encourage everybody to go out and get a copy. Um, we're also planning on being at the Great Basin Conference this fall um, in October in Las Vegas. I know right now it's kind of kind of a little unnerving, but that is our plan. We're gonna have a book signing there in the book room. So um, you can buy your copy there or you can bring your copy and get it signed
0: that's wonderful yes if anybody is going to the great basin archaeological conference get your book get it signed it is we we all say it's more than worth it it's a wonderful wonderful book and we so appreciate you both coming on to discuss the book with us it has been an absolute treat so thank you so much
3: thank you so much for your time and your invite Fabulous. Yes,
4: Thank you I so much it. for having us. This has been such a fun conversation. And like Susie said, it's um, definitely motivation to continue to pursue these topics and ideas. So, you know, get out there and talk more <laughs> about what women are doing. There are so many badasses that we didn't even have a chance to mention. Exactly. Well, whenever you, you write
0: your next book, you'll have to come on the podcast again. Yes. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> and to all of our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can find us at womeninarchaeology.com where you can see our blog posts and our past podcasts. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes and Spotify as well as the website. If you're interested in coming on the podcast or you have ideas for the podcast, you can contact us at archaeology at gmail.com. And you can find us at womenarchies on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and remember to review, subscribe, comment, and all of that good stuff. Goodbye!
3: Bye! Bye!